Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Happy 2020 and welcome to episode 130 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. I hope you had a relaxing turn of the decade, and I really apologize if you missed us while we were gone on our holiday hiatus, but we're back and ready to kick off this new year in fine fashion. As the title of this episode suggests, I've decided to take a dry January, a few weeks away from alcohol just to give my body a little reset for a month or so. I'm joined in this recording by Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall, and we look at some of the strategies and implications for taking a dry January, as well as a few little projects you can do to make it more interesting for your palate. But first, let's ring in the new year right and give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured no-ABV cocktail is the Grapefruit Brulee. This is an original mocktail designed in collaboration with our friends over at Element Shrub, and we're going to be rolling out one of these original drinks each week with our January podcast episodes. To make this refreshing libation, you'll need three-quarters of an ounce of Element Grapefruit Vanilla Shrub, which you can purchase on modernbarcart.com, a half ounce of burnt caramel syrup, which I'll explain in a minute, a half ounce of fresh lime juice, one teaspoon of orange marmalade or something similar, and several dashes of embitterment chocolate bitters. Combine all ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake until it's well chilled, and then double strain into a rocks glass over a large cube and garnish with a grapefruit twist. Notice I said double strain, and this is to kind of catch any of those little bits and pieces that might be floating around in either the citrus juice or the marmalade. This cocktail is a complex fusion of tangy flavors and luscious, silky dessert tones. The grapefruit, vinegar, and lime juice create a spine that accents the caramel, vanilla, and chocolate. And when you take alcohol out of the equation, especially when you take alcohol out, it's really important to consider how each flavor is going to play off the others to create balance in the drink you're making. Now, to make that burnt caramel syrup, which adds both richness and bitterness, all you need to do is add maybe a quarter to a half a cup of granulated sugar to your oddball metal saucepan. Everybody's got one of these. It's that little pot that's been with you through three or four moves and doesn't really have any brothers or sisters. I repeat, use your oddball pan. You don't want to use your favorite saucepan for this because it can get a little messy. So you add your sugar, you heat it on medium high, and you stir that until it's a melted kind of sticky dark brown color. And then you stir in about as much water as the amount of sugar that you put in. So if you added a half or a quarter of a cup of sugar, add just a little bit less than that amount of water and you stir that in until you've got a syrup. I'd also recommend good ventilation for this because depending on your stove, your saucepan, and the type of sugar you use, there might be a little smoke. 
Head on over to the show notes page or to our Instagram profile at Modern Bar Cart to check out a gorgeous picture of the Grapefruit Brulee Mocktail. And as a little favor to you, both the Element Grapefruit Vanilla Shrub and our Embitterment Chocolate Bitters will be 10% off for the remainder of the month of January in case you'd like to pick up a bottle and try out this drink alongside us. So now that you've got yourself a refreshing, complex, no ABV drink to kick off this season of podcasting with me, let's turn our attention back to this dry January conversation with Modern Barkhart co-founder Ethan Hall. Some of the topics he and I discuss include what we're excited about for 2020 and what Ethan is excited about being based in D.C. for the first time in several years. D.C. bar trends, as well as noteworthy closings and areas of the city we're excited to explore afresh. Nerdy cocktail and cooking toys we've picked up over the past month and how we're planning to use them in the new year. Ethan's cayenne hibiscus kombucha recipe, which happens to be an excellent low sugar alcohol substitute that you can replicate at home. My dry January rules and regimens, as well as my thoughts on the term sober curious. Ethan's answers to our new set of lightning round questions and much, much more. This is a lighthearted and fun way to kick off the year. I'm super glad to be back on the airwaves with you. So sit back and please enjoy this first episode of 2020 with my friend and yours, Ethan Hall. Ethan, welcome back to the podcast. Woo! And more importantly, welcome back to DC, man. It's been a while. Yeah, it's good to be back. I've always considered DC to be a home to me. And the best part about this is that it's been the better part of three or four years spent figuring out how to get back here. And finally, that question has been answered. And here we are, not going anywhere. Too bad. Nice. Yeah, it's like that uh, very difficult part of the hero's journey, right? You like, you go out, you do all the shit and then the hero has to make his way back home, which is always like, you know, the trip back to Ithaca is always, uh, the most difficult part of the journey. Right. Now that you're back here in DC, uh, what are you excited about, man? Like whether that's modern bar cart stuff, whether that's just like general DC things you've missed, like, I, I don't know, is it half, is it the half smokes? Is it the mumbo sauce that you've been missing? What is it? Right. Let's break it into a few things. For Modern Bar Cart, uh, I'm excited to be back in some of the less exciting day-to-day operations. I really handed that off to you guys, and there is some uh, production and distribution logistics that are interesting to me. Also excited that we're working on ways to really catapult beyond that basic stuff, and I'm excited to continue to make sales for us. They've been a little bit few and far between outside the DC area over the years, but had a couple interesting ones though. We've gotten into a couple of interesting bars as a result of you going and doing your various car drops in the in the cities that you were. Yeah, shout out to Pammy's in uh, Cambridge, Mass. One of my favorite places. Very sad to be leaving that one behind. But they are uh, big fans of our Iki Japanese bitters. So, Pammy's, uh, you go head over there if you're in the Cambridge area. Um, what else, though? You're back in D.C. You've got yourself kind of settled in now. Is there anything, like, on your bucket list for the next couple months that you want to do here besides uh, avoiding the tourists at Cherry Blossom time? Yeah, I am really excited to see 
what has been happening at some of my old haunts. I know that's a less about what's new question and more about how is the Columbia Room faring? How has the Upshur Street Corridor uh, evolved? And I'm excited to, you know, I think we've talked about this in a previous one. I'm excited to be a regular at a neighborhood bar here in my new surroundings. Yeah. Excited to be able to report back on that and have that be part of my day to day, which is sort of the opposite of what we'll be talking about today. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is ostensibly based on the title of an episode where we kind of discuss some thoughts back and forth about dry January. But one thing to note is it's not dry for everybody. (laughs) Right. In our house, we're calling it damp January. It's good to follow your peer pressure and maybe think about how much we've been drinking since around Thanksgiving. It has been a lot but not necessarily to take a hard and fast rule because there's a lot of alcohol right behind me over my shoulder on my home bar. And I don't like to neglect those friends for too, too long. Yeah. There was a, my, my wife had a friend uh, and we were at this happy hour while she was still in grad school. And this friend was drinking one of those massive margaritas that has a Corona like upended into it. A Coronita or full size 12 ounce. I the big the big one yeah so it was and she was like nursing this drink over the period of you know quite a while and then at some point like the server came and took it because it was you know all on its way to being empty but certainly not quite empty and uh, she get she got all upset I was like that's what happens you know when when you uh, neglect your kids the state comes and takes them from you and the same thing happens when you neglect your drinks so uh, definitely sympathize with with that and um, I think we'll, we'll definitely get into why I'm doing a dry January uh, in a couple minutes here I have very specific reasons and and most of them aren't so much related to dry January itself, but like related to idiosyncrasies that I have. Um, So we'll talk about what those are. Uh, But uh, I want to talk about since this is like our first episode back in 2020, I want to talk about what we're excited for for this year in general. Uh, And I guess I'll start off by saying what I'm most excited about kind of like in the immediate term. Uh, One is that I've got some really cool new toys that we'll hopefully be playing around with here in the coming months. I've got an awesome immersion circulator, courtesy of you. And actually, right when I left my house to get on the road to come here to record this, I got my uh, kind of like the giant, not giant, but a large like container that has a, an adjustable lid that can kind of fit that immersion circulator so you, you lose less evaporation in the process. So I've, I'm all set up. I've got some some cool little accessories for that. So um, for anybody who's not familiar with a sous vide or an immersion circulator, how would you explain what it is and what it does? It's really a device that helps keep a constant temperature that you can pretty tightly control in a water bath for whatever it is you're trying to cook in that method. I don't think this is the right forum to explain how sous vide works other than to say, put something in a bath of water, vacuum seal it off from that water. You're not trying to stew it or anything. You bring it up to the final temperature you want it to be at. And rather than trying to cook it from the outside in at like 400 degrees, the theoretically you're getting 
a perfect level of doneness throughout, which is great for meat and is it good for other stuff? Uh, it's good for meat. It's good for seafood, especially because a lot of seafood can get kind of tough if you cook it certain ways. Uh, sous vide, I believe. I could be wrong. Jeez, I hope I'm not wrong because I took French in high school. I think it means kind of like under void. Um, and the idea there, that's referring to the vacuum sealed kind of plastic bag approach. Um, but you can, you can do a pretty good approximation just by using a regular, um, you know, quart or gallon, um, you know, Ziploc bag and it, it, you, you can kind of like emerge or submerge it into the water above where the food is and then kind of seal it off. And that does kind of like a 90% to a vacuum seal. It doesn't, doesn't create all that pressure, which is great for things like marinades and rubs and stuff. Um, but the, one of the things that I'm excited about with the sous vide and the immersion circulator is that once we figure out kind of like how it works, what I can do with it in the conventional cooking space, I'm excited to see if I can turn it to cocktail applications. Uh, and I know that there's a lot out there. I haven't dove very deep in that as yet, but that's one thing uh, I'm excited about. Um, the other one, the other big toy I should mention is that if our uh, mutual friend, uh, Rusty Garnish gets his act together, I might have a smoker in the near future as well. Well, he won't hear it on this podcast. Yeah, he doesn't so listen. It's not a big loss either way. Also would like to caveat that anything that we say uh, relating to food safety or the safety of anything you're consuming uh, should not be taken seriously. We are not uh, We are not your health inspectors, and we will not be held responsible for that. So, yeah. Consuming uh, raw or undercooked meat, et cetera, et cetera. Sous eating without a vacuum without a vacuum could be uh, something. Yes. Yep. So um, be safe. Uh, don't listen to us. Uh, worst comes to worse. Yeah. Don't listen to us. Uh, so yeah. So one of the projects with the smoker that I'm excited about is I want to make some smoked ice, which is basically a process of smoking water and then turning said water into ice, which is is interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out on the clarity front. Obviously, you're putting these polyphenols and basically like the, uh, the wood ash into the ice. So I'm curious to see if it's possible for that to yield clear ice in the cocktail space. And I'm also curious to see if I can maybe hack that smoker with the purpose of making some smoked citrus garnishes in the style of a dehydrated citrus garnish, but that has kind of a smoky aroma, because I feel that one of the things that really uh, vanishes when you do those dehydrated citrus garnishes that are so beautiful is that you lose the aroma of that fruit. And I'm interested to see if I can do a smoked version that's actually, you know, really intensely aromatic. Interesting. For smoked water, could you get the same effect by like throwing some hickory chips in the uh, in your bong and just taking a few rips and then dumping that water out? Yeah, that uh, again. Uh, see, see the medical caveat. We just had. I don't. I don't know if I want to advocate. Don't inhale. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't, uh, yeah, that sounds a little bit suspect. But um, the, I think the advantage of having the smoker with like several trays is I can put like several trays of water in there and get a big enough selection of water to then pour into a cooler and then freeze in a large block format, so that at least some of that ends up being hopefully somewhat clear. Gotcha. Um, so what about you? What are you excited about here for 2020 besides, uh, just the fact that I have a lot of new toys. So few new toys coming into my house as well, uh, both on the fermentation equipment side, as well as investing in some appliances and some glassware. Again, 
you know, we've been dealing with a lot of moving around. This is the chance to settle in and have a permanent set of things, which Mm -hmm. means my cocktail glassware, my hardware is going to get some serious upgrades over the next year. I anticipate looking around this kitchen, figuring out if there's a good spot that we could potentially do some draft cocktail situation. would be pretty cool for entertaining purposes. Might be a little bit out in left field. Also excited to really take advantage of some of the both the openings and the festivals that DC that DC has starting in the springtime. So, you know, as we look as we look forward into 2020, now is not the best time to be thinking outdoor drinking, but this is one of the better places for it in my opinion and I really can't wait. Yeah, if you can get a place that doesn't have a ton of mosquitoes, that's like the, it it, it all depends on where you are. If you're in the kind of Columbia Heights-ish area, yeah, there's a chance you might get kind of bit up out there. But if you're in like the H Street corridor or somewhere on 14th Street or downtown, then yeah, outdoor drinking is, tends to be really comfortable, especially if it's on a rooftop. Um, Do you have any favorite like rooftopy areas? I know our friend Russell aforementioned really likes... uh, some of the ones down by the wharf where you can like literally sit on a uh, sit on a deck and watch the planes take off from Reagan with a with a Negroni, which seems wow. amazing. Yeah, I'm going to have to learn. It's uh, practically, you know, it's a whole new old city for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to love Dasha. That was, you know, some solid outdoor drink. I mean, beer gardens in general are right. freaking great. Not really cocktail podcast fodder, uh, but yeah, let's find out. Yeah, and the other thing too that we should mention in terms of bars closing, you, know, you mentioned like a lot of your old haunts, and and uh, there has been sort of a trend of lots of long-standing, long-tenured bars closing here in DC. I don't know if you've heard anything about that, but like Sign of the Whale, um, what's the other one there? The Social. Um, well, not a, not exactly your high end cocktail spots. Oh, but. of course, yeah, but but it's it's interesting. Like, do you think like having just having having just heard me say that now? Like, I'm I'm telling you that like a lot of kind of like collegey or like you know Capitol Hill intern style bars are closing. Like, uh, I don't know if the bottom line close, but um, like bars like that. Um, do you think that that's a trend that is alarming in any way for cocktail bars, or do you think that we're still kind of safe here in DC? I think we're still safe. It'll be interesting to see if the intern class continues to you know, migrate out to places like Clarendon. Are we still going to have your really dirt cheap happy hours? My guess is, yeah, there's always a need for that. It's just going to have to change where it's happening. It is sad to see um, when Buffalo Billiards goes away, for example, but yeah, that's what I, yeah, that's the one I was referring to. Buffalo Billiards closed, I think about a month or two. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not too worried that we won't have a place to drink. I will be much more sad if I see something that's more of an institution going away. Yeah. And I think what I'm still excited for is like finding those places where you still can get a cheap beer and happy hour combo. Yeah. Um, or a, you know, a good happy hour cocktail, um, that, uh, you know, there, there's, there are, there are still places like that. I'm going to, uh, spoil the game here and say that my favorite is district chop house in Chinatown. Yeah. It's like their upstairs bar is an incredible place to go for happy hour. And it's within a block of the Capital one arena, 
Uh, and yet it's still very comfortable to go up there and get a cheap app and, and a beer or a cocktail. And, uh, it's just, uh, to me, it's like the best place in like downtown in DC to get a decent drink. So, uh, hopefully with the closing of these institutions, there'll be some more places like that that kind of like step up to absorb that traffic. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, yeah, I think DC's pretty healthy and maybe we can, um, well, once, once we have a chance to, uh, go out and sample, uh, some of the newer places, we can maybe come back and report on, on what's happening here in DC. I'm a, I'm a longtime fan of that chop house happy hour, but I'd like to get some more independent recommendations from you. I know it's dry January, so <laughs> it's true. Yeah. We'll have to wait on those, but I, I know you're, I know your head's full of them. Yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll hit up some spring menus once people start shifting. Last thing I'll say is I'm getting stoked for our West coast road trip. We are hitting the road in February and taking uh, a couple weeks to go out to California. So I'll be hitting Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, so as I mentioned in our, uh, 2019 year in review episode, if anybody is listening out there and you have any recommendations for us, please, please, please email us at podcast at modern in the near future, because we are actively planning that trip and the, the time slots are beginning to fill up for interviews and stuff like that. So if you, if you have an idea for us, or if you want us to stop by somewhere in either of those places, please reach out on the sooner side. Uh, and then sort of like the conclusion of that for me will be spirits judging at the American distilling Institute's uh, annual judging of craft spirits. And hopefully I will also get a chance to record some awesome podcast interviews with some of the judges there as well. So hopefully lots of great content coming up in, in um, the coming month. Um, can we talk uh bucha before we get into dry January? I'm getting a little dry here. Uh, yeah. So dry January is a great time to explore a lot of your low ABV, no ABV drinks. Um, I would say my kombucha is probably on the low end. I don't really do much testing on home fermentation for this. Um, but we're about to enjoy some hibiscus cayenne kombucha, uh, courtesy of my own home fermentation projects. So bottoms up. Yeah. So uh, you, uh, you served this to me the other day. You, you gave me the bottle. It's one of those awesome, like swing top bottles. And I, if, if you don't know what those look like, it's, if you've ever seen one of those Grolsch beer bottles, it's got like a little metal hinge and a plastic stopper with a rubber collar on it. Uh, and you can get them at like Ikea. I get mine on Amazon, just Amazon. like everything else. Yeah. Swing top bottles. That's what they're called. Um, these things are great. If you're doing any sort of home projects, uh, I highly recommend getting swing top bottles because they're a easy to clean and B, they're highly functional and they, they don't take up any more space in your fridge than a normal bottle of anything would take up. So they're pretty economical to buy, easy to clean and, and really great. And, and they do, especially when you're talking fermented stuff like kombucha, you get a bit of a seal on here. Yeah, uh, if you can get up. some secondary fermentation, we'll see how carbonated this one is. Uh, you actually do get, uh, you actually do capture most of that uh, for quite a while. They have a great shelf life. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going to pop this open here. Let's see if we get a little nice little pop. Uh, we just scared the dog, um, but you hear that lovely sound. Uh, and so we've got good carbonation in this. Here, let me pour it by the mic so people can. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, ASMR stuff right there. Pour yourself a little bit. Now, 
I am kind of ambivalent on kombucha. I'm a fan of it generally, but a lot of it is too sweet for me. So it's kind of, it's, it's something I enjoy in moderation, but this particular recipe, I'm hoping you can maybe expand on a little bit uh, to explain like why it's a little bit drier, uh, which kind of explains why I like it so much and, and what makes it special. Sure. I got started making this because my girlfriend, Alex, was buying a lot of kombucha, started to get me into it. It's four bucks a bottle, something around, the, around those lines. It also has a ton of sugar in it when you're buying it at stores. Not all of it, but most of it. Uh, it's... You know, it's like any other soft drink you would buy. I just found out from my dentist. He said that kombucha is really bad for your teeth. It's a bit acidic, high in sugar. And, um, you know, point being, there are a lot of opportunities to do this at home, not just because I'm a miser, but also because I, you know, this is my nasty tendency is to always find something I think I could do at home better, get obsessed with it, do it too much, ruin the game for everyone and make it less fun. <laughs> In this case, you know, my kombucha, the reason why you're saying it's a little more enjoyable, a little bit lower on sugar is I'm not adding any anything after the fermentation has occurred. Um, typically when you're buying a, you know, a store-bought, they've added quite a bit of sugar or fruit juice back in to make it more palatable. But um, I found other ways that I think make it pretty good in this case using hibiscus to bump up the acidity and some mm -hmm. of the floral notes and then using a bit of cayenne just to give it a little bit of a pop and both of those are really cheap ingredients you can get them both online or you know hibiscus is a little bit harder to find in a store but uh, it's so cheap and it really does provide a lovely tang we use it in our typhoon tiki bitters uh, for that reason yeah yeah i love this because i think for me it gives you that nice burn. I mean, like the the cayenne, it sticks with you. And, you know, uh, we, we can talk about this in relation to a shrub where you get that vinegar burn. I think what's happened to my palate personally is that I've spent so much time around ingredients that people with maybe sensitive palates would call extreme that those are no longer extreme to me. So if a shrub, if a vinegar-based, you know, drinking syrup or drinking concentrate sounds intense to you, well, to me, that's it's, it's really not as intense as it used to be. And so having the hit of cayenne in this kombucha that stays with me for way longer than like a spicy ginger or a vinegar would makes this a really refreshing thing that I'm not just going to crush because I tend to crush things. Yes. Yeah, this also when you do add ginger gives it a little bit more legs it's a nice way to artificially bump up that gingery potency that's quite frankly pretty hard to get unless you're drinking fresh ginger juice we've run into that with syrups and stuff like that you know cayenne is a great shortcut it's a little cheat right right and it's you know it's a there's again not doctors but hey spice and capsaicin tend to you know be good for you they've they, you know we're not the first people saying this people for thousands of years have known uh that this uh is the case in in, in many situations so uh good for you uh low sugar now the last thing i wanted to ask about this and, and hopefully i can get you to give me the the recipe so that we can stick it in the show notes page um i wanted to ask about that sugar in relationship to a term that you just mentioned, which was secondary fermentation. So kombucha has this stuff called SCOBY, right? What's SCOBY? 
for, uh, for I think those it means sus- I think it means stable colony of bacteria and yeast. Mm-hmm. That's kind of your uh, your vinegar mother or your sourdough starter, but for kombucha, uh, you need one in order to make this shit ferment. Mm-hmm. You can buy one online. I got my starter on Amazon. There are things online where you can find a recipe for how to create your own. Find a friend who makes kombucha and get them to peel off a few layers. Yep. It's pretty disgusting, but you can. Yeah, so it, if it, you ever want some scoby, just hit me up. I'll. It's a little stanky looking. Like it's you know, it looks kind of like a jellyfish floating around in in your drink. Um, but my, I guess my question is right. So this stable colony of bacteria and yeast. I'm interested in that last letter, the yeast. When I think about secondary fermentation, in many cases, what's happening is you all right, so you get your primary fermentation that kind of creates the CO2 and maybe a little bit of alcohol. In this case, a very mild amount of alcohol, like a sub, generally a sub-perceptible amount of alcohol in kombucha. And what is it? In order to sell it as kombucha in stores, it has to be less than 0.05% or 0.5%. It's something like a non-alcoholic beer. We got a lot of uh, people throughout the years who have made uh, kombucha who are acquaintances of ours who could help help out with that. Yeah, but it's a, a very, very small, like in order to sell it in stores, it's a very, very, very low ABV. Um, but yet what you're saying is that these people are often adding sugar and fruit juices to those kombuchas, which is exactly what you would do to initiate a secondary fermentation. And so my question is like, do these commercial kombuchas in Europe, and do you, do you think that they have to kind of like kill off all the yeast and bacteria before they add that sugar in order to stay below that point five or that point zero five percent alcohol, whatever the regulation is? Because to me, it would just seem like once you add that sugar, if you don't kill off those yeast, you're going to get booze. You know, I'm not sure. I think some of this, uh, you know, one of the ways that you can stop it from continuing its own fermentation is refrigerate it. So what I'm doing is, you know, and it's a lot easier to control at home where you're not trying to make this for a profit. You're not making hundreds of gallons of it at a time and running it through a bottling line. I can cut it off at the end of, you know, a four to seven day fermentation cycle, siphon this into some bottles, add a hibiscus tea concentrate. I'm basically giving you my recipe at this point. Right. Put the tops on those bottles and leave it at room temperature for a couple more days. I have to throw it into the fridge to, at that point, pause fermentation. Or I've noticed you lose carbonation, you get some funkier flavors, and... I guess I would attribute that to letting it run a little bit too long. There's definitely a sweet spot, um, even though this isn't sweet, that I'm trying to hit with this. Mm. And it's, yeah, you kind of feel it out over time because I've had a lot of undercarbonated batches. I've had ones that are so carbonated it's really unpleasant to drink them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that seems to be a matter of how much sugar is left in there when you seal off everything from the outside world right how many gas how much gas are you capturing inside of that gasket on the bottle for sure and it does make sense i mean we were talking about um you know pausing the fermentation with temperature you know i mean yeast operate most effectively at a very specific temperature range and so sticking in the fridge does seem to solve that so i guess we'll put that question on hold i'm just a little bit suspicious of the kombucha industry i suppose uh so i wanted to run those questions by you but i think 
Um, I'll continue to look into that. And if I do find any hard and fast answers, we'll definitely be sure to, uh, to update folks. But, um, ready to talk dry January. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to turn this over to you. I am really curious about this. Well, I understand that there are people, there are people in a world. Yes. There is a world in which people, some stop drinking or deliberately pause their consumption of alcohol for the duration of the calendar month of January, which correct me if I'm wrong, runs from the first through the 31st day of the calendar year. True. Yes. Am I, am I understanding this correctly? All correct. So beyond what I've I, I've described, what what are the rules associated with this? What are you doing? Um, so I think I have different rules from other folks, and I think if you decide to take a dry January, a you're late to the game. It's the sixth already, um, so get on it. Uh, but I think it's important to kind of set your own rules and, and determine what it means for you. In the past, I have been skeptical of dry January because. To me, it kind of looks like a very Puritan or extreme way of doing something that everybody should know how to do anyway, which is to moderate your consumption of alcohol. Um, that being said, I'm really bad at moderating things. I'm kind of an all or nothing guy. And so I think that's why for me, I wanted to do a dry January this year, uh, hey, just to experiment with it a little bit. Uh, it can't be that bad for you, right? Alcohol is kind of a mild poison. Uh, it's definitely an addictive drug. And so I think spending time away from anything like that does a couple things. One, it demonstrates to you, the person engaging in the act, that yeah, you are capable of functioning without this kind of, you know, whether you think of alcohol as a crutch or an enhancer or, you know, however you think of your relationship to this substance, the fact that you can demonstrate to yourself that you can do just fine without it is I think a really useful kind of reinforcing tactic uh, kind of helps you get your, your head straight uh, and feel less dependent on it if, if uh, you are indeed in a position where you feel in any way dependent on alcohol to kind of calm you down. Um, I know especially in that really busy time for me between uh, November and December during the holidays, it was, you know, in, in many cases, I used it as medicine to try and help me get to sleep to kind of, um, you know, just allow me to relax and put off some of the stuff that I knew was hanging over my head for tomorrow long enough to at least get some sleep and be more effective that next day. But of course there are consequences to this, right? In, in, in waking up hungover. So I found myself, especially during that really busy period, trying to balance well, how hungover do I want to be relative to how much sleep I'm getting? And, you know, then there's other hanging questions like, well, what is the quality of that sleep anyway? If you're, if you know, if you're using alcohol and alcohol has a, a definite uh, detrimental effect uh, to sleep quality. So um, despite how I was using it, you know, kind of during this really intense period for our company, I, I definitely had a lot of questions floating around and, and taking a dry January this year seemed to be an opportunity for me to just explore like what the inverse of, you know, drinking almost every day would look like. Yeah. I, I know you've dabbled in a lot more, we'll call it periods of abstinence 
than I have, and it's an interesting it's an interesting approach to it uh, because yeah, I can I can stop anytime I want. I just don't want to. Yeah, and that's my problem is I don't think I could like I I may have dabbled in more periods of abstinence, but I have probably also dabbling seems like a bad term here, but dabbled in in more periods of uh, verging on unhealthy usage excess. Excess, yeah, we'll call it that. We'll we'll, we'll blame uh, the the Greek god of of uh, wine and revelry on that. We'll blame Bacchus, um, but uh, but yeah, uh, I'm just really bad at at moderating, uh, and I I know I'm. But I, I so the other the the flip side of that is I am uh, really disciplined in general. So if I do set something for myself, if I set like a very binary, it's like you're just not going to then that's something I can stick to. Um, so for me, it, what a dry January looks like is um, not drinking. Uh, I had to put one caveat in there um, for like podcast interview stuff because of the, the podcast, the show must go on. So if I have to drink for the podcast in order to, to make it an engaging interview, like, yeah, I'm going to have a drink on air, you know, for the purpose of, of creating good content and, and contributing to a conversation. So if that comes up, I will have a drink, uh, still count it as my dry January. But beyond that, um, trying to go zero alcohol, um, you were kind enough during uh, our, our little football viewing party the other day to have some uh, no ABV beers for me, which was, which was nice. And the other rules that I have for myself are trying to somewhat cut down on caffeine. Um, coffee is, is a great way to get my day started for me. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to cut down on the amount that I'm drinking because I think, um, one of the patterns that it's very easy to get into is like, okay, coffee, caffeinate, you're on an upswing, blood pressure goes up, you have your day, people throw a bunch of problems at you inevitably during your day, you get stressed by those problems, that plays into the high blood pressure, and then by the end of the day, you need something to bring you down. And so I think that's how like the caffeine and uppers and downers, caffeine and alcohol loop really reinforces itself. And for me, I think one of the most helpful ways to look at it is instead of being in transit between a high and a low, instead of constantly being on your way to somewhere else using a substance, I look at dry January as an opportunity to, to gather around a middle point, to kind of like gravitate around what your natural set point, your natural rhythm is. Uh, and I think that's just a, it's a certainly a more gentle way and potentially in, in many people's opinions, a healthier way uh, to look at life. So um, yeah, I think that's my big takeaway is like, all right, why am I doing this like very harsh abstinence? Uh, because for me, that's the only way I'm going to get to experience that kind of like gathering in that very like neutral center point where it's just me without a lot of noise. So that's kind of like how I'm looking at it. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, uh, some of the, I'll call them the deconstructionist philosophical positions, I'm just going to interrogate you on this a little bit is you've basically made an absolute claim to moderation. I guess yeah for you, for a set period of time. Yeah, you're devil you're uh you're delving into a state of to a hardline absolute state of sobriety in order to reach a moderate point. Right. Yeah. And and the, like I look at it this way like it, especially you know you just mentioned philosophy. So many philosophical arguments discussions you could even bring this into the real world in terms of like political discussions. So many of them are polarized between two extremes. 
right? You're either drunk or you're sober, um, or you know, you're red or you're blue, whatever it is. Um, you know, they call those dialectics, but it's you know, I, I think what a lot of people overlook is the opportunity to kind of just be comfortable in the middle space between those two extremes. Would you call yourself sober curious then? Uh, I, you know, I wouldn't. Um, you know, we, we were speaking off air about this term, and I think the, the term sober curious is, is pretty interesting to me uh, in a silly kind of way, uh, in that I don't think anyone should be curious about being sober because that's how we were born. And unless you were drinking your entire childhood, which, you know, if, if that's the case, I have, you know, we, I feel like a different conversation needs to be had. But uh, I, I don't think that anybody should be curious about what it's like to be sober, because that's that should be, in my opinion, the default state. Um, sober curious is a term that I've come across uh, in the cocktail and non-ABV space, and I think the most charitable definition that I can give it is it's a term that a lot of people use to um, to kind of refer to the group of people who maybe know that they drink too much and are possibly interested in modifying that behavior and becoming less drunk, right? So instead of like being curious about what it is to be sober, I think really what sober curious means functionally is for people uh, like, you know, like I, I think of the hard driving, like service industry folks, like the people who are, you know, pounding shots with you behind the bar, the people who are, you know, kind of like those, like the really, like think of the platonic idea of what a bartender is like a hard drinking bartender that to me would be like somebody who could fit into that sober curious category because that lifestyle really wears on you. However, my one gripe with sober curious is that whenever somebody uses the term like directed at me like like you know like in a it, with a completely straight face it always seems like when they at when they use the term sober curious they have the same kind of look in their eye as when somebody walks up to your door and and asks you have you heard the good news it just seems like they're looking for a convert uh and and i'm so that that kind of automatically makes me a little bit skeptical um, because I, you know, because again, as sobriety is kind of a set point. So it's like, it, it seems a little hand wavy to me. I don't know. What do you think about sober curious? I think I'll attach to one of the things you just closed out on. Uh, there are different or different u- useful or functional definitions for sober. There are people who would term themselves sober it means that they are either in some form of lifelong abstinence or recovery, which is a journey that a lot of people decide to uh, undertake. And that is its own culture and set of values. And there's a lot um, that that does for some people. Right. Um, dabbling in that as kind of a spectator sport, I think, is a little bit... A little disingenuous. Yeah, I, I I hesitate to use terms like cultural appropriation because sometimes I like using those terms for other reasons. Um, but you know, there's that form of people who say I am sober, and then there is the right and and the implication, like what you're basically what you're saying to put it in more plain language is somebody who had a real drinking problem and can't drink anymore, or someone who is who has without ever having touched a drop of alcohol has abstained their entire life, a teetotaler. Um, sure. But typically when someone says I'm sober, they mean I am in recovery 
um, which is a lifelong process, right. versus it's about 2 p.m. on a Tuesday here, and I won't have a drop of alcohol or mind-altering substance other than caffeine until, you know, probably after dinner today. Yep. Um, I would count myself as in a sober state of mind right now, and I pro- and that's uh, that's its own that's its own thing. Right. And we can get into you know why I feel like damp January is my uh, preferred approach here, which is just that I still value that we've drastically cut back drinking in my house since our shit show of a New Year's Eve party a couple of nights ago, <laughs> which is great uh, because I can wake up in the morning and I don't even have that fog where necessarily don't know if you'd call that a hangover, but it is certainly harder to think before 10 a.m. Um, when you've had a couple of beers and then a whiskey nightcap and maybe a glass of wine during dinner, never delving into some kind of problematic drunkenness, but I sure as hell wouldn't have driven my car. Uh, you know, you get into that, you get into that pattern over a few uh over a few nights a week for several months at a time and you start to miss out on what is it like to consciously here we go this is your this is where you really want to be at, um is to consciously uh, decide to keep a you know clear head yeah exactly uh which can be its own drug right if if you're active which is if you're actively able to clear your head which clean is clean and serene man yeah clean and serene uh yeah it's something i i continue to struggle <laughs> with um last thing i'll say is i think um abstaining for a long period of time is great for your liver uh your liver is the internal organ that definitely takes the brunt of your uh, alcoholic beverage consumption in terms of, you know, potential damage. Uh, but livers are kind of cool in that they're a bit of a sponge. They're a filter. They're kind of like your, your blood's Brita filter and, uh, giving your liver a break for an extended period of time really does it a favor in that, uh, as long as you are not switching out your alcohol consumption for like lots of Advil or something that your liver is then also forced to work overtime to process, then, um, you know, it gives your liver time to kind of heal and repair, which uh, I'm not qualified to comment on this in depth, but it does seem to be one of the few um, internal organs or tissues that does actively do a decent job repairing itself uh, if you leave it alone and, and give it some time and space to do that. Yeah, give your body a break. Um, and there are a lot of businesses and places you can go while you're giving your body a break. So one of the things that I would consider a drawback that a lot of people see, and it probably was more so the case in you know, the past than it is now, is there was less of an industry uh, surrounding sobriety or activities that are, you know, I just came out of, uh, out of business school and we had a very hard time creating activities for people that weren't centered around alcohol. And I think we're getting a little bit better at that as an industry and a society, which is good because, you know, I'm going to ask you about where you'd recommend people do that and how they do it. But I just want to make the comment that there's a big industry full of good people who make their money in the dispensing, manufacturing, and otherwise of alcohol and intoxicating substances. January for Modern Bar Cart is traditionally a pretty slow month uh, we can weather it but it is taking tips out of people's pocket it mm-hmm. is hurting business and 
that is uh, that that's an unfortunate uh, that's an unfortunate side effect of this. And some folks have actually capitalized on that. And, you know, I encourage people to think about ways that they can make that a business opportunity for themselves. But, you know, if you're interested in doing a dry January, where are you going to still get your kicks? Because you're not just becoming a hermit during this period, right? Right. I mean, that's my preferred mode of being is, is hermit status. But uh, that's not for everybody. There are a couple really cool opportunities. Uh, I'm going to list some some specific ones right off the bat, but then I'll, I'll give you a couple tips that I think would be helpful. Like if, for example, you were the kind of person who was like, well, I want a brunch, but I want a brunch dry, but I don't want a brunch boring, if that makes sense. Um, so in particular, uh, I'd say the most like noteworthy, high-profile situation is that the Columbia Room, uh, run by our former podcast guest, Derek Brown, uh, who's kind of the the head honcho in DC bar circles in many respects. The Columbia Room's running a, a completely dry menu in January, I believe. So so check out uh, the Columbia Room, check out their social media and, and their website, learn more about those options. Uh, I know that they're rolling that out. If it's not already out by the time this podcast airs, it's, it's certainly coming out imminently. Um, and uh, Element Shrub and Modern Bar Card are gonna be featuring um, dry, no ABV cocktails, uh, along with the podcast episodes that we're launching uh, throughout the month of January. So uh, there'll be one launching with this episode, and there will be several others that we're going to feature this month. So if you are more in a home bartending mode, then you're going to have the opportunity to like kind of pick up those ingredients from modernbarcart.com. And we'll give you instructions on any other things like fruits, vegetables, garnishes, uh, any any homemade ingredients you might need to to make those. They're not complicated. If we can do them, you can do them because we're not all that bright. Um, so that's another great opportunity if you're more in the home space. Now, if you are in the D.C. area or if you're in any major metro area, you know, Ethan, what you just said is very true. Um, the industry is now starting to like kind of understand and react to dry January as, as it's become more of a trend and, and the no ABV cocktail thing in general. Uh, so I would say if you are going to a bar that has like a cocktail program of any sort of note, then you can probably count on them, if not having a no ABV option, being able to reliably make you something because I guarantee you're not the first person who's asked for it. Um, so that's something that you should really consult your server or your bartender about. Um, and and obviously the more reputable the establishment, the better likelihood that you're gonna get a nice no ABV drink uh, as opposed to like a, you know, a ginger beer and lime or something like that that's, that's just, you know, very, very basic. Um, the other thing that I would mention is, um, you know, just go and check out their specials online because a lot of these places are going to have dry January specials. Um, so I would say this year, as opposed to many years in the past, is probably the best time to be going out as a dry January person because the industry is fully aware of it. They've, I, I would say the number of health initiatives in the cocktail industry um, spurred by uh, organizations like Tales of the Cocktail and like the USBG and the DC Craft Bartenders Guild, those health initiatives are an all-time high. So the implication that that has is your bartenders are thinking more healthy for themselves 
And so obviously that's going to cascade into healthier options for you at the bar because they're thinking in that space. So there's never been a better time to go out as a consumer uh, and try to find some great dry January concoctions. Awesome. Yeah, I like the idea that we're moving. We have been for a long time and it's never been a uh, sober no-go zone, but it's pretty cool that uh, bars are going beyond simply you know, begrudgingly making you something that's going to have a lower price on it. That's another point to bring up is, you know, these are oftentimes 10 plus dollar, no ABV cocktails, which, um, you know, as a business owner, great. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you, yeah, you are putting money back into the pockets. I, I mean, I wouldn't pay like $15 for a no ABV drink because it's, you know, kind of missing one of those key components that's taxed heavily. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think the other thing, you're right. I mean, I think you should have a little bit higher expectations. And I think that's the the rising tide that that, uh, that helps everybody in this situation is the higher your expectations are. And if you can communicate those in a kind and like responsible manner to your bartender, then that's going to, that's a data point for them. Bartenders are always listening. They're always watching their job is you and making you happy um, so don't keep quiet about it uh, voice your opinion if, you, if you're doing a dry January let them help you and let them give you a great hospitable experience um, for your for your brunch or your your night out I think uh, it's something that if you want that to happen more and more often put the pressure but put it in a kind and kind of like you know responsible way or if you love a good dive bar, as I do, uh, go in there, have a club soda with lime. Don't uh, complain about it, but uh, tell them I sent you. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so I, before we wrap up here, uh, I wanted to run a couple things by you. These are new lightning round questions, and I want people to get excited for us working these into our new interview format. So I figured I'd get your thoughts on these. Uh, you ready to uh, to get on the hot seat here? Let's do it. All right. First one is what is a, you can call it a common or uncommon cocktail ingredient or format or whatever that you have never tried before? Yeah. We were talking about this before the podcast. Other than a clarified milk punch or something of that matter, I have never had a cream-based cocktail. So grasshopper, brandy Alexander, white Russian. Uh, until recently, I was lactose intolerant and could fall back on that one. I guess you could also say I have had spiked eggnog, but you know, I barring that, never had a cream-based drink in my drinking career. Interesting, and it's 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 a little bit atypical that you had milk punch, but not the not like the I guess the sweeter, more entry-level prototypes because I think the White Russian may have been my first cocktail. Yeah, it might have been. White Russian, mint julep. Uh... Yeah, one of those two. I think the first White Russian I had was at an event when we were both back at Gettysburg called Drinking with Lincoln. And it was when uh, some people's uh, parents who lived in town allowed us to kind of run roughshod over a very nice bar setup in someone's house. And we just, I think that's what we gravitated toward was a White Russian. Yeah, I think my response to that was just to pour whiskey or brandy into my black coffee. That's an interesting choice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. So cream-based cocktails. Uh, do you have any that you're jonesing for? Or is that, are you kind of okay that you haven't tried those? I'm okay that I haven't tried those. Um, again, I'm eroding my own position because it depends on whether you consider an Irish coffee to be a coffee-based cocktail or a cream-based cocktail. I'd but... call it a coffee cocktail. All right, good. So I'm still pure on this. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, prove me wrong, make me something. I, I think I'm really curious about grasshoppers because I've definitely had, like, I think there's, like, a dessert version of a grass, like a no ABV grasshopper or maybe something that is, like, creme de menthe. Yeah. Um, that functions in the dessert space in a similar way as the cocktail functions in the cocktail space. But I really want to try a grasshopper because I like mint. And I think that creme de menthe is a, a much maligned mixer. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's the best thing since sliced bread. But I, I, I'm i curious to play around with that. So we might that might be an experiment down the road here. Um, we could do a high-end craft version of the Applebee's cocktail menu. Uh, do a grasshopper, a mudslide, mm-hmm. um, an LIT. And we just elevate every component ingredient and rethink those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of material there, and there's uh, if you listen back to our interview with Derek Brown, you'll hear a lot about uh, like what TGI Fridays uh, in particular had to do with keeping cocktails alive during the dark ages. Uh, but the other lightning round question I wanted to ask you about was, what is a controversial or strange opinion you have uh, when it regards spirits and or cocktails? I don't filter my water, and I don't think you need to unless you're in the unfortunate circumstance of a Flint, Michigan type of situation. Um, If you can point to a really good health reason and not the same health reason that you would point to for me to drink kombucha, meaning not bullshit, give me some science and show me why my local DC tap is unsafe and I'll filter it. I do understand that sometimes there are cases where a specific water will pair with a specific spirit and when i can get it i have a couple go-to sparkling mineral waters that i love to mix with specific whiskeys Um, so i kind of play on both ends of this but the ice in my freezer i made from my sink and i'm gonna keep it that way yeah nice i like that it's like yeah you're 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 kind of all or nothing with it like if you're if you're gonna do it go all the way but otherwise forget it don't don't stress about it yeah i don't think we need to all have our water taste exactly the same which is the objective of something like a brita system or going all the way down to a um you know distillation or a smart water is there's stuff in your water that isn't really gonna hurt you as a beverage drinking consumer um, that makes it a little bit different everywhere you go yeah no water terroir Mm -hmm. you know in a word uh i will say i was very skeptical of dc water at first because they're often at many events like the h street festival you'll see like dc water set up a tent in a lot of places and at the place that i lived for probably like three or four years i put one of those filters on our sink and I had to change the filter every couple months because it turned orange and I was like oh god (laughs) and now that I'm in a new place that doesn't happen anymore so I think if you're in DC and you're worried about water I think the more important thing is the quality of the pipes running directly into your place of living uh as opposed to like the quality the objective quality of the water before it gets there right and it comes back to a question of privilege is you know if you're in a situation where you have access to perfectly adequate water and you still choose to purchase your water for daily consumption shame on you and if you're in a place where your circumstances have created an unsafe water drinking situation, shame on the people who are serving you that water. Yeah, sure. 
that's fair enough. But um, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, I've I've been actually using my tap a lot more now that I see that my little on on sync filter is like not turning brown every right. like every month or two. I I now I'm just like oh yeah. I'm going to fill the coffee pot with tap water as opposed to filtering it from my, my Brita filter. Yeah, I will say if you're in an area with a really high uh, mineral content in their water, does also mean that you're going to be doing quite a bit of cleaning. If you have really expensive instruments, I get it. I uh, you know work in the lab equipment space, and that's, uh, that's an area where the kind of water you're using to buffer your uh, equipment is incredibly important. Um, yeah, but my body isn't a genetics lab, even yeah. though it... Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ethan, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast here. Um, very excited to have you back here in DC. Uh, for folks listening, we're going to link to a bunch of the stuff that we've been talking about here over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Uh, that will hopefully include uh, the recipe for Ethan's awesome hibiscus cayenne kombucha so you're gonna be booching it up with the rest of us here this dry january uh, if you have any questions about dry january if you have any th- if you want to ream me out for my mistreatment of the term sober curious uh any of that feel free to just give us a shout podcast at modernbarcart.com and uh as always drink responsibly and experiment boldly Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, kombucha and water quality insights by Ethan Hall, and a little bit of teetotaling interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.